0: Welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles, the second half of the Albigensian Crusade, from 1215 to 1229. In November of 1215, two years after the Battle of Mue, Pope Innocent III summoned the Fourth Lateran Council in Rome. He had managed to organise the largest ever assembly of clergy in Western Europe, for they had a great many things to discuss. The most important issues were reform of the Church and a call to recover the Holy Land. Innocent was also extremely eager for a resolution of the situation in southern France, especially since it had become a hindrance to his plans for a fresh crusade. By then, Simon de Montfort and his followers, under the banner of what we today call the Albigensian Crusade, had secured control of most of the southern region of France, Languedoc, and much of Provence. Count Raymond VI of Toulouse was allowed to argue the case for the return of his lands, while the clerics argued the case of Simon de Montfort. Innocent appears to have had some sympathy for Raymond, but the vast majority of the clergy were adamantly opposed to the Count. The official verdict of the council was to condemn Raymond for his negligence of his treatment of heretics, and ordered him not to return to his county. All the lands taken by the crusaders were to remain under the control of Simon de Montfort, who would hold them as vassal of the King of France, leaving just a small area which would be inherited by Raymond's son, who would become Count Raymond VII. The decision stamped the Church's seal of approval on the Crusader Conquests. Simon de Montfort was now the official Lord of Languedoc. That was probably expected to be the end of the matter, but fighting in the region continued. The 18-year-old Raymond VII, as soon as he left the council, started to organise a resistance movement and found plenty of support. A large section of the population were downright hostile to the northern invaders, as reflected in the songs sung by the troubadours of the time. Even the papal legate, Arnold Anmerich, who had so stridently fought against the Cathars, now turned against de Montfort, dismayed by his insatiable ambition and by his heavy demands for taxes in his new lands. The young Count Raymond VII achieved early success with the capture of the castle and town of Boucaire, which held strategic importance on the River Rhone. Simon de Montfort heard that Raymond now had his eyes on recovering Toulouse, but responded by dealing harshly with any of his enemy sympathisers in the city and taking hostages from among the citizens. In the autumn of 1217, though, while Simon was busy campaigning against southern resistance in the foothills of the Pyrenees, the old Count Raymond VI, after secret dealings with the consuls in Toulouse, was able to re-enter the city secretly, under the cover of fog. He was received with great joy by the citizens who immediately set to work on fortifying the city in anticipation of the return of the Crusaders. Simon besieged the city, but this time was unable to make a breakthrough. Nine months into the siege, on the 25th of June, 1218, while supervising the deployment of a siege engine, Simon was struck on the head by a stone, fired from the town, and despite wearing an iron helmet, was killed instantly. Simon de Montfort had been a remarkably successful general, as demonstrated many times during the Crusade. Indeed, the difference his personal contribution had made to the success of the campaign became all too clear after his death. His lands and titles and the leadership of the Crusade were passed on to his eldest son, Armory de Montfort. But the new Lord of Languedoc did not inherit his father's military skills. In fact, no one among the northern warriors proved capable of providing the same leadership that Simon had, and the crusade quickly faltered. In 1219, Prince Louis, heir to the French throne, led a large expedition into Languedoc, but achieved very little. He captured the town of Marmand from the southerners and then massacred the local population. Next he besieged Toulouse, but after the official 40 days of the crusade had expired, he raised the siege and returned to Paris. The effort was half-hearted, with little support from among either the northern barons or his father, King Philip Augustus. Philip still seemed reluctant to get dragged into the war in the south, even though the conflict with King John of England and Emperor Otto IV had by now been resolved in favour of Paris. During the next two years, the southerners recovered one stronghold after another, and the region began to enjoy a brief respite from the constant war which had plagued it over the last decade. The lands they recovered, however, had changed. They had been impoverished by years of warfare, and when the dispossessed nobles returned to their castles, they were unable to recover the splendid courts, that in earlier times had supported the musicians and poets. The perfect started to re-emerge during this period. Those who had survived, Simon de Montfort, had done so by hiding in caves, or in the Pyrenean fortresses of Monsegur and Caribus. By 1226 they felt confident enough to gather in a Cathar council, hoping to resume as normal life as possible. But peace was not to last. The early 1220s witnessed a period of change as the old figures passed away. In 1222, Raymond VI died, still excommunicated. The clergy, angry at the Count for not cooperating with the Crusades, refused to give him a Christian burial. Count Raymond Roger of died the year after. He had fought as hard as anyone against the northern invaders. Both men were succeeded by sons who proved themselves capable leaders. But the death which in this period proved of greatest consequence was that of King Philip II Augustus. He passed away on the 14th of July 1223 at the age of 58 of a fever. He had been one of France's most successful ever monarchs and left the French crown in a far stronger position than when he took over. Having overcome all his opponents, including various counts in northern France as well as both the Plantagenet kings and German emperors, France was on the path to becoming the predominant power of Western Europe. A few months after the death of King Philip, Armoury de Montfort admitted the failure of his campaign and renounced his rights to Languedoc in favour of the new King of France, Louis VIII. Louis quickly showed himself to be far more interested in the region than his father had been. The south was an area of political weakness which might be filled by the kings of Aragon or even the kings of England if positive action was not taken. So in the spring of 1226, Louis led an army into Languedoc, far larger than any of the armies of the Albigensian Crusade. Although it was technically a crusade because of the support given to it by the Pope, Louis summoned his feudal army. This time the only town to put up strong resistance was Avignon, which held out for three months from June to September. Other towns eager to placate the king quickly submitted to his authority. The campaign of the French crown to assert its authority over the region was not slowed by the death of Louis of dysentery on his return journey to Paris. His widow, Blanca of Castile, regent for her twelve-year-old son, Louis IX, was determined to continue the policy of extension of royal power in the south. The northern troops systematically destroyed the vineyards, crops and fortified houses of the countryside to terrorise the population into submission. And when it became clear that no outside help was possible against this overwhelming force, the people of the region, worn down by years of warfare, decided to yield rather than prolong the suffering caused by the conflict. A peace accord known as the Peace of Paris was finally agreed to in April 1229. Count Raymond Seventh conceded defeat to Louis IX, officially ending the Albigensian Crusade. At the beginning of the Crusade, Raymond VI had been forced into a humiliating ceremony to show penitence and his submission to the Church. At the end of it, his son and successor, Raymond Seventh, went through a similar humiliating ordeal in order to be reconciled to the Church. Barefoot and clad only in his underwear, he was led to the altar in Notre-Dame de Paris. There Raymond promised to support the king and the church, and to work to stamp out heresy. Raymond ceded more than half of his domain to the King of France, but was allowed to keep most of his lands as Count of Toulouse, as a fief of the King of France. Also all nobles who had left their lands because of persecution during the Crusades were allowed to return unless they were proven heretics. The lands which lay on the east side of the Rhône, though, were ceded to the church. Raymond also agreed to destroy the walls of Toulouse and of all the major towns in his domain, and not to build more castles. Perhaps the most significant part of the treaty concerned the inheritance of the county. Count Raymond VII's heir, his daughter Joan was to be married to Louis' brother Alfonso, and so his lands would be inherited only by the children of Joan and Alfonso, or if they had no children, by the King of France. At the time, the treaty probably seemed the best possible option. There was always the strong possibility that Raymond VII might have a son who might reasonably be expected to inherit before his sister. Raymond decided to divorce his wife, who had only given him one child, Jean, on the grounds of consanguinity. He agreed to marry the third daughter of his erstwhile enemy, the Count of Provence. Although the match had support from the girl's father and her uncle, King Jamie of Aragon, the long vacancy after the death of Pope Celestine IV in 1241 frustrated the plan, and in the end she married instead Richard of Cornwall, the younger brother of Henry III of England. Despite the best efforts of Raymond VII, he was never able to remarry. Dying without any male heirs, as did Joan and Alfonso, all his lands were eventually incorporated into the royal domain. Although the Peace of Paris in 1229 marks the end of the political and military struggle for Languedoc, it marks the beginning of what became known as the Inquisition. The persecution of Cathars during the Albigensian Crusade had only been partially effective, in fact quite sporadic depending on the events on the battlefield. Many Cathars were still able to continue with their practices. So the church reorganised its method of inquiry into heresy, which now became much more systematic. Suspected heretics went through a legal process, and if found guilty were severely punished, often by being burnt at the stake. In the beginning, the Inquisition was conceived as an emergency measure, but was to last for several centuries. In fact, its scope was later significantly expanded in response to the Protestant Reformation. After the Peace of Paris, the occasional revolt broke out, but any real political resistance to outsiders or to the Catholic Church was broken. The Perfects and their most devout followers were forced to retreat to an ever-shrinking number of refuges. The last significant of these was the castle of Monseigneur, a rocky hilltop 1,200 meters high in the foothills of the Pyrenees. In the year 1243 it was besieged by royal forces, but proved exceptionally difficult to capture. After ten long months the inhabitants were forced to surrender. The civilians and soldiers were allowed to leave, but those Cathars who refused to renounce their faith were condemned to death. The chronicler William of puy describes how quote, they were burnt in an enclosure, within which was set the fire and they passed into the flames. Over the course of the rest of the 13th century, the French court tightened its control over the south. The work of governing the territories was given mainly to northerners, in place of the local nobility. The power was now in the hands of the king's appointed Seneschal, who would summon his Viscounts for consultation only when he saw fit. In 1258, the kings of France and Aragon came to an agreement on the borders of their territories. From then on, the local Viscounts, especially those in and around the Pyrenees, would no longer be able to play off different overlords by switching allegiance between them and so by 1270, most of the great vassal families of the 12th century had disappeared, either from failure of male heirs or through poverty. The nobility in losing their autonomy also lost their culture, which had relied on the independence of their courts. It was difficult for the troubadours to continue with their patrons, having either disappeared or lost their wealth. The region on the whole, however, and the towns in particular, returned to prosperity as a result of the peace which now existed, and a revival of trade. In some ways things returned to how they were before the Crusades, but in others Languedoc had changed irreversibly, and a number of other possible outcomes for the region were denied. The Cathars were forced underground and then exterminated. They had relied on the freedom of action and of thought which had previously prevailed in the region, but which was now stifled by the rigid feudal structures imposed from the north. The failure of the counts of Toulouse before the Albigensian Crusade to unify their lands or, or to impose their will upon Languedoc did not mean that the region was any poorer. But it did mean that Raymond VI was simply unable to carry out the demands imposed on him by Pope Innocent III. The lack of unity also hindered the military effort against the crusaders, who on the whole enjoyed superior military training. For a period in the Albertansian crusade the people of Languedoc had discovered unity in the struggle against the crusaders, and for a while were able to fight on and recover lands lost. Perhaps the region could have been able to maintain its independence if the French crown had not been in a position in 1229 to take advantage of the financial and military exhaustion of the region. Had things turned out differently, the counts of Toulouse may have been able to develop a state running from the Pyrenees along the Mediterranean to the Rhône, and maybe even further eastwards. Another historical what-if... That of an extension of Aragon into southern France was ruled out by King Peter II's death in the Battle of Muret. For the Church, the Albigensian Crusade was a mixed blessing. On the one hand, it had successfully regained its monopoly on spiritual authority in the Languedoc. On the other hand, Christianity had become increasingly militant and associated with armies and war. At the same time as the Crusader States in the Middle East were in a desperate fight for their very survival, new crusader recruits were diverted to campaigns closer to home, which offered the same indulgences, but with far less risk to life and limb. As well as the Fourth and Albigensian Crusade, Pope Innocent III and his successors also sanctioned the Papacy's political crusades in Italy against political enemies such as Emperor Frederick II. Such dubious initiatives weakened the message of the church, which had felt compelled to employ force of arms instead of reason and persuasion. Also, when innocent allowed that a vow to take a cross might be commuted for a money payment, redemption became associated with the payment of money. Indulgences were later increasingly exploited by the papacy for their ability to bring in income. The line between when the church or an individual pope was acting out of spiritual principle or self-interest became ever more blurred. This and the cruel and pervasive influence of the Inquisition brought the papacy into disrepute, provoking a reaction which simmered for centuries and helped contribute to the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. So that was a very brief summary of the Albigensian Crusade and its consequences. In the History of Crusades podcast, Sharon Eastell goes into much more detail of the events. The next episode of the History of Europe Key Battles in three weeks is about a region so far neglected by the podcast. The area just north of the Black Sea, today part of Ukraine and Russia. I'll go into its history from the ancient Greeks until the late 10th century. In my research, I discovered many new things about the area, which I'm looking forward to telling you about. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.